Thanks for tuning in to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded live in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. For more information, visit banner.church today. Enjoy the message. Thank you, worship team. I love that song today. I don't know the last time we sang it other than earlier this morning, but I said in first service that it seems fitting today to sing a song about the names of God because all we're learning today is is how God is the source of all things. But before I get into that, I want to introduce myself. My name is Chandler. If if we haven't met before, uh, my wife Kelly and I are uh, volunteers here at Banner Church. We've been here since the church launched, and we're glad to be here and call this place home. I'd, I'd love to meet you after service um, if I haven't met you already, um, or, or catch up if we have. But it's, it's my pleasure to continue our series, uh, Confronting Christianity, and to follow up where Jamin uh, so well left off when he spoke last week on Has Science Disproved Christianity? And we learned that science, when it's in its proper place, is a fantastic gift from God and a fantastic tool for glorifying God. And Jamin illustrated for us that when we think of science as that tool in its proper place, it serves us well. But when it becomes a master, it doesn't serve us well. Science verifies the truth about God because science answers to God. And we get that order backwards, and we run the risk of losing all the beauty, all the innovations, all the delights of science, because it's no longer under the banner of Christ. There's a reason that we call this church Banner Church, and there's a a verse in Isaiah that is the immediate reason. But behind that verse, the banner of Jesus Christ, or the banner of the root of Jesse, is this idea that everything in the universe exists not for us, but for him. That we live and we move and we have our being in Jesus Christ. And so whether it's an art or a skill or an endeavor or science, whatever the tool or, or thing may be, it rallies in its proper place, properly understood under the banner of Christ. And there it gathers to play its part in glorifying God. Why do I go on this digression about like the purpose of science and and the reason for everything rallying under the banner of Jesus Christ and it's because I think that gets at the first part of our two-part purpose in this series confronting Christianity we could divide up why we're doing this series probably into seven purposes if we really wanted to but as I was thinking about it this week two things came to mind in particular and the first is we allow Christianity to be hypothetically confronted in this series in order to encourage us in the faith. Because if our faith can withstand interrogation, can withstand the hard questions, and not just answer the hard questions, but transcend and even define the terms for those hard questions, then we walk away from messages like Jamin's last week and hopefully mine today more confident that the Jesus Christ we serve, serving and living under his banner is nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be embarrassed by. If you carry the name of Christ, you have no cause for shame or embarrassment. You have no need to apologize for the truth. 
You might defend the truth, and you might be into apologetics, but you don't need to apologize for the truth. You may have to acknowledge, as a Christian, your own sins and mistakes, or even the sins and mistakes of other Christians, but you never have to apologize for Christ. Our creeds, our calling, our Christ are trustworthy. Our Christ is the hope of the world. Our calling is irrevocable. Our creeds are reliable. So, Christian, talking to you, Christian, count on your faith so you can live it out. And that's what we're trying to do in confronting Christianity. But the second purpose relates more to the, the unbeliever who might be in the room or who might be watching online. I forgot to say hello to the online crowd when I first began. I want to say hi to you now. And, and if you're a, a non-believer and you're, you're listening or watching us for the first time, we're glad that, that you're watching. And we're glad that you're here if you're here in person. Because the second purpose of con confronting Christianity is to shine a light on Christianity where maybe the world has cast a shadow. Because when you illuminate Christianity, when you allow the complexities, the sophistication, the beauties and intricacies of our faith really shine, it does not lose its luster. It only becomes more splendorous, more desirable, more worthy of our trust and our, our desire. The world wants you to believe that among all the array of worldviews that we supposedly have our, our choice of, Christianity in their eyes somehow falls short compared to the, the competition. The world wants you to believe that materialism is more reliable than the Bible. That New Age spirituality might have better vibes than prayer. That political lobbying achieves greater ends than discipleship. But in fact, God's help is better than self-help. We live in an age of disintegration and confusion. Our society is more disintegrated and more confused probably in some respects than any society before us, especially in the West, because we are on the downward trend away from Christendom, from a society in which the eternal truths of the Bible and our doctrines are not just forgotten but actively attacked. And so we're disintegrated. And when a disintegrated society slowly begins to realize its own confusion and disintegration, it begins to ask, ask questions like, does science disprove Christianity? But Christianity does more than answer that kind of question. It actually transcends those questions. It defines the terms, as I said earlier, for these questions. When a disintegrated society needs a standard of truth, and a standard of love, Christianity offers it. And one of the most hot topics among young people today, but really among all people today, is the question, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Why is this even a question? Well, I think when we hear a word like diversity, and we wonder, why, are, why is the world asking that of us as, as believers? A couple of different ideas might come to mind. But as people living in a postmodern age, as distinct from a modern age, the question, does Christianity crush diversity, begs the question, well, what kind of diversity? 
Is it just ethnic diversity? Is it just cultural diversity? Because in a postmodern age, we have so many standards of truth that are mutually exclusive. We have so many options before us in the way of ideologies, in the way of creeds, in the way of beliefs, that it's easy to get caught up in different kinds of diversity. And so what I want to talk about today is first deal with ethnic and cultural diversity and address, does Christianity celebrate many cultures, many peoples? Does Christianity encourage reconciliation? But to answer that more postmodern question of diversity, we also want to ask, what can we learn from ethnic reconciliation in the Gospels? What can we learn from that that might apply to the more microscopic or minuscule or small-scale differences that so often divide us in our consumer culture? Because I don't know if you've noticed, if you go to Jack in the Box and you got your burger and your fries and then you go to get a soda, you have 20 options before you. And that's not just the consequence of postmodernism. That's the consequence of being in a consumer culture with expendable money. But it's also symptomatic of this idea that we need more options. We need more alternatives to make us happy. I'm going to find just my right mix of Sprite and root beer and high C. And that's, I mean, hypothetical, guys, hypothetical. That's not my choice. You've been there, if you've been 13 years old, you've had, either it was you or it was your friend that you're like, that's disgusting. It's a thing. That's the result of a culture on a small, very small scale that has so many option, options and is wondering, what do I choose? And although it might not matter so much or much at all on the soda level, on the spirituality level, it really matters. And so that aspect of diversity can get really granular I'm not just a white, non-Hispanic American. You know, if, if you wanted to ask me, well, what are you into? What are your hobbies? Tell me about yourself. I wouldn't probably say that at all. I'm more like a white, non-Hispanic American Protestant evangelical theology movie buff combo with a hint of wannabe lumberjack or something. So that's an exaggeration, right? But I think the point stands insofar as I think we are agreed that you have never had more options available to you than you've had in this day and age. And in a consumer culture like our own, the products you consume, the podcasts you listen to, the crew you buy concert tickets with can easily become not just a group of friends, which is good and healthy for you. It's good to have that group. But they can become, and that culture can become, the very source of your identity, such that if that group were to split up or that culture were to disintegrate, you yourself would disintegrate. So that's why the question, doesn't Christianity crush diversity, is not just important, but it's crucial in our age. And if Christianity does crush diversity, people in our church, or in our society, I should say, are given just one more reason to say, I don't belong there. You think my culture is unsuitable for Sunday morning? I'm out. Your experience isn't the same as my experience. Okay, we're just incompatible. I'll find a better fit. We're going to have to teach hard truths from the pulpit, so to speak, from the platform, maybe every week, often, right? We're not going to stop doing that. But there's a difference between saying hard truths 
and imposing a monolithic culture on a people that says you have to be a certain kind of person in order to be accepted by Christ. Imposing a monolithic culture in order to make them feel pre-qualified for fellowship or acceptance or appreciation, like it's some sort of loan. That's not the culture of this church. And today I want to explain how we have actually derived that concept of diversity as a good thing, as a thing to be celebrated, that our differences do not necessarily need to divide us, and in most cases don't need to divide us. We can derive that from Scripture as a thing to be celebrated and pursued here at Banner Church. But as I said, many different kinds of diversity. I think the best way to approach this question first is to look at the most obvious kind of diversity, ethnic or cultural diversity, and see what the Bible has to say about that. Because these are the kinds of diversity issues that make the headlines, and for good reason. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, she says, for many, the idea that Christianity is a white Western religion intrinsically tied to cultural imperialism stands as a major ethical barrier to considering Christ. This is a great starting point for our study because in the days when the Bible was written, the world was far less global and interconnected. So when that's the case, your ethnic distinction or your ethnic heritage becomes way more important because you're not associating with people from New York or LA or all over the world anymore. You're associating usually with people you know and have developed a strong bond with that is inviolable to your culture. So we'll do a little experiment to see if something might have changed between 1000 BC and 2022, as we're speaking today, when it comes to our prizing or treasuring of our ethnic heritage. So I'm a, I'm a Nick. Uh, my last name is Nick. My, my dad's in the back. I, I know his name, of course. And if I'm thinking about Ancestry.com, you know, parentage, lineage, I can go back to um, Thomas. That's my grandfather. So I know Thomas. And I think of Otto and then Peter. So I can go, oh, Otto, I'm sorry. I'm I got it right. Okay. I thought I got it wrong for a second. My dad gave me the thumbs up. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Point proven. Um, I can go all the way back to, to Peter. Okay. That's a few generations. How many of you can go back further than your great grandpa or grandma on one side, just one side in their lineage off the top of your head? Scott? Anyone else? Gaetana? Okay. Can you go five generations back? Six. Okay. You're a terrible <laughs> example for this. <laughs> Um, you are odd in that way, but we love you for it. We embrace the differences. Thank you. You, you are the walking advertisement for Ancestry.com. With the exception of Gaetana and anyone else who has spent a lot of money on... She's special, yeah. No one else, right? We don't, that's really cool that you know your family that well, right? But the point is, the vast majority of us can't go back more than three or four generations in order to, uh, in, in li lining up all our, our fathers or mothers or whatever, right? But if you were to go to Israel in 1000 BC and you were to ask Jehoshaphat, hey, who's your grandpa? He'd be like, well, of course I can tell you my grandpa. I can tell you 50 generations back because it's written down on a tablet and it's buried inside some tent on the other end of camp because if we don't have that, we don't have my very, you know, my, my land, we don't have my rights to the land, right? So 
ethnic heritage was a much more important thing back in the day. We can only go back a few generations, right? But by a miracle of God, Christianity enters something estimating that culture around 0 AD, where you know, Jesus comes around and starts doing his ministry in roughly 30 AD. Christianity enters that culture, and Jesus takes this Jewish religion that is so tied to that tablet in the list of names and father, son of, or this person, son of this person, son of this person, on and on and on, and transforms it into a faith in which we say, I am not defined by who my father was. I am defined by who I have faith in. How does a faith do that? And I could tell you the easy answers, right? To prove to you that Christianity does celebrate diversity. If you're a skeptic and you're thinking, I don't think Christianity really is that way. I think it purports to be that way or it likes to sell itself as a very inclusive religion. Then I might try to throw some facts at you. I might try to prove it by saying how Christianity did not reach Britain until 500 years after the apostles died. So if Christianity is supposedly a white, imperialistic, Western religion, how do you account for that fact? It took 500 years for the Britons to hear about Christ. Or I might say how the most influential theologian of all time, Augustine, was North African. I might say how Protestant Christianity is booming right now in China. I might say how Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years, more in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries combined. I might argue that Christianity is bucking the caste system in India, elevating so-called untouchables to the dignity that they deserve as human beings. And between 1910 and uh, 2010, I could argue that the number of Christians in the world who live outside of Europe and America, so outside of the Western world, has risen by 30%. I could tell you all these history lessons and facts. I could pull out some exciting pie chart to show you how the majority world is becoming more Christian. I could do all those things, and they might be nice supporting evidence or a nice cherry on top to demonstrate Christianity celebrates diversity. It's not a white Western imperialistic religion, but the trouble is the rejoinder from the skeptic is way too simple. All they have to do is offer counterexamples of ways in which the Christian faith has legitimately abused its power, its greed, its money, its position in the world as a major religion to abuse people groups who are marginalized. That has happened. And you can see it whether you want to admit it or not as a believer, and it's tough to admit. We can see it in the scholarship of someone named Edward E. Andrews. He says this about Christian missionaries and the way that historians used to talk about Christian missionaries and the way they talk about Christian missionaries now. Quote, historians have traditionally looked at Christian ministries in missionaries in one of two ways. The first church historians to catalog missionary history provided hagiographic, that is very holy, descriptions of their trials, successes, and sometimes even martyrdom. Missionaries were thus visible saints exemplars of ideal piety in a sea of persistent savagery. However, by the middle of the 20th century, an era marked by civil rights movements, anti-colonialism, and growing secularization, missionaries were viewed quite differently. Instead of godly martyrs, 
Historians now described missionaries as arrogant and rapacious imperialists. Christianity became not a saving grace, but a monolithic and aggressive force that missionaries imposed upon defiant natives. Think of the words that were used in that description of missionaries. Arrogant, monolithic, aggressive missionaries. Those are four words that shouldn't go together and often don't go together, but they've gone together enough, especially in the past, that in the minds of many, many non-Christians, that is the first thing they think of when they think of Christianity's global impact. And they're looking at a period, mostly, in Christian history in which many white Western imperialist Christians with money and power did abuse the Christian faith for their own gain and at the expense of others. So again, I could tell you all the nice facts about how Christianity has proven itself as a Christ, uh, religion that celebrates diversity, but then we're relying on a human argument. And so what I'd rather do is I want to base the argument for why Christianity does not crush diversity, but in fact provides the basis for diversity in the Word of God. Because if we root our argument in the Word of God, we can answer any objection because we know that it's trustworthy, it's a guide for our faith that is infallible. And what we see in the Bible is that biblical Christianity from the Old Testament on is a message all about embracing all people to glorify God in Jesus Christ. From the Old Testament, I wanna show you today, from the Old Testament, we get the message that all human beings, though diverse, share a common origin. And from the New Testament, we get the message that all believers, though diverse, share a common purpose. And I wanna show you those two points from the Bible, and we'll start from the Old Testament and let's talk first about that common origin of all people, regardless of ethnicity or culture, believer and unbeliever alike. The point is that diversity is good from the very beginning. So we go back to the beginning. We go back to the book of Genesis. And if we're to use the Bible as the basis, it makes sense to go back to Genesis because it's the foundation of everything that the Bible builds upon. There's no better basis for the dignity of all peoples so here we encounter in the creation of Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, as early as it gets, page 1 of the Bible, we encounter this doctrine called the Imago Dei, or in English, the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, people have often debated, what does it mean when it says that God made us in his own image? People have said it could be reason. Maybe my ability to, uh, my, my capacity or my existence as living in God's image, maybe that's owing to my ability to reason. The problem with that is a thousand years from now, when Elon Musk has preserved himself in ice and reawakens to activate his artificial intelligence, that artificial intelligence, for all I know, could reason really well. How do we make the distinction between my reason and the AI's reason? 
Others have said, no, it's our ability to communicate through complex language that defines us as human beings, that makes me made in the image of God. But then at that point, how do you make the distinction between the complexity of the way a dog might bark, a chimpanzee might make its you know, hand gestures, and the way a dolphin communicates with fellow dolphins? Are those not quite at the threshold of complexity? What defines that threshold? Others have said, oh, the image of God, it's all about your free will. Can you exercise free will? If you can, you're a human. And I think that gets a little bit closer. But the trouble is, all those definitions of the image of God are not rooted in the text of Scripture. And so if we really want to know what it means when God says, I have made you in my image, and that's the basis for our creation, then we have to go to the Bible itself and, and not think philosophically so much as textually. Look at what the Scripture says. And we see the word image, and we have the advantage of this statue. It's the, it's the Tel Thakuria inscription on the statue. This is a, an image of a king who is standing in for his god. And on the skirts, you can't see it because it's so small, there's a very long inscription. And one of the words that is used in the inscription basically says, this image is the king who is the image of his God, and he represents God to his people. And when we apply what we learn from this statue to what Moses, who authored the book of Genesis, is saying, we understand that Moses is aware that his neighboring cultures, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, ancient Near Eastern people, when they use the word image, what they're referring to is the authority and the reflection of the gods, in the case of the Akkadians, the reflection of the gods as expressed in the king of those people. The king bears a sort of derived divine authority, and it's on that basis that he can tell his subjects, bow down to me. Moses is taking that idea, altering it, and very much improving it by applying it not just to the lucky king who happens to be the image of God to his people. He applies it to every man and every woman that is on the earth. We have a true royal dignity that Moses is trying to point out here. We carry with us the authority of God insofar as we live out the image of God consistently with his character. So why do I show you this? Nothing about this, nothing about the way this man appears makes him made in the image of God. He's a statue, and even if he were flesh and bone, nothing about his physical appearance would define him. It is his being. At the fundamental heart of his being is this idea that he is a representative of God on the earth because he reflects God. One of my professors, um, Dr. Thickpen at Phoenix Seminary says this, being made in the image of God means that as humans, we are connected to God and reflective of God. And then I add, that means we don't have to do anything in order to be made in the image of God. We only have to be. Nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing you produce, that may be important, but none of those things is essential to who you are as a human being. So how does that affect the way you work in the world? 
We can think about economics. If we apply the image of God to economics, we learn that our economic activity is impacted. First and foremost, the image of God indicates that our deepest connection is not with others who are just like us, maybe rich or poor, but rather with all who are created in the image of God, with all of humanity. That is our deepest and most profound connection. Our work and economic valuation are secondary to our creation in the image of God. My creation in the image of God is also your creation in the image of God. Humanity, Adam and Eve, were created in God's image. So what does that mean? Our individual creation is also our communal creation. We are humanity created in God's image. We are the ones that are designed to be connected to God and reflective of God, both individually and collectively. This places economic status and economic conflict secondary to what is most true of us, God's definition of our identity as humanity. Apply that to any field. Art, art science, economics, ministry, business, whatever field or discipline you call your vocation that has no bearing on your fundamental essence as a humanity. It's related to it, but it's not the basis of it. And we see this demonstrated in the book of Jonah, and we apply it to ethnic distinctions. Because if what's true of us in our vocations is true, then it also must be true in our ethnicity. And that's crucial to the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel took pride in the fact that their father, Abraham, was the one who received the oracles from God. The one, later on, who was followed up by Moses, who received the law and passed it on to the people of Israel. The Akkadians, they did not receive the law. The Assyrians, they did not receive the law. It was the special province. That communion with God through that covenant was Israel's possession. And yet, all throughout the Old Testament, we see God treating all the peoples of the world with mercy and grace and great compassion. And it enrages the Israelites at time. And Jonah is a perfect example of that. You might remember him if you've gone to church for a while and read the story or just seen, you know, the VeggieTales movie. Jonah is, is called to go to Tarshish, uh, go from Tarshish to Nineveh and to preach, repent. And he does that, and he succeeds. The king of Nineveh takes on sackcloth and ashes. All the king's subjects take on sackcloth and ashes. Even the animals are denied food and basically fast in an effort collectively for the entire people of Nineveh to repent before God. And Jonah gets God's wish, but to Jonah, it's a curse. Because it is to him proof that God is no respecter of persons. The salvation, the forgiveness that's offered to the people of Israel when they repent, it's also offered to the nations when they repent. And although the nations at this point in time might not have that special connection with God in the way that Israel has, mercy is still available to them. We see that with Rahab 
We see that with many of the prophecies in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere, and we see it here in Jonah. And Jonah's attitude might say something about our tendency to, to cringe or maybe want to crush diversity in our own hearts. Jonah says, it says in Jonah 3, when God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And then God, in his mercy to Jonah, causes a plant to sprout up, and the plant covers him in shade from the sun. But God always has an object lesson in mind, and so the, the plant dies. And Jonah gets even angrier, so angry, he says, that he would die. And the Lord says to him in response, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? End of book. It's definitely the, the strangest ending in all of Scripture. It just ends so abruptly on a question about cattle. And why does the author of Scripture do that? Some people want to say, well, we lost the ending. You know, the, the tablet broke, the clay broke, or the papyri's gone. It was a really great ending. Now we got this awkward one. It's still a pretty good work of literature. Let's put it in. No. That's not what's happening. Because it's clear the point that God is making with that speech. Jonah has spent his time fretting and complaining about the fact that when God sees an option to bless one people group or multiple people groups, God always selects multiple. God doesn't choose just one. Although he might select the nation of Israel to be a special mouthpiece and a special example of his love and his covenant, every person in the world, including the wicked Ninevites who repent, have grace and forgiveness offered to them when they surrender to God without distinction. And so why does he bring up the cattle? Because for Jonah, he need, Jonah needed that distinction between man and beast to make clear to him how far his estimation the people of Nineveh had gone down. It had depleted and dropped so much that God had to say, I will spare even the cattle because I am so merciful. Don't you think the God who would spare cattle will also spare human persons who are made in the image of God, just like you, Jonah? So the personhood distinction is key here. God loves creation, but he has a special heart for people. But among people, there is no distinction. They are one insofar as his love is concerned. So what's the takeaway for the person who hasn't yet chosen to follow Christ. God is no respecter of persons. His commitment is to save the lost from the very beginning and all throughout the Old Testament. It's been to seek and save regardless of ethnic distinction. And even Abraham, the pinnacle of the Jewish heroes, rabbis have had debates 
about whether Abraham, Moses, or David is the greatest Israelite of all time. And often Abraham comes out on top because he's the one who receives the promises originally. He's kind of the OG receiver of the oracles of God. You might throw Noah in there, but Noah has an interesting story. But Abraham is kind of the launching point from which God's redemptive plan for the whole world is going to, to, to come into fulfillment. And so when we read Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham, that's even more clarifying than the call of Jonah. Because if we go back to Abraham, we see in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was blessed, not so that he can hoard the treasure or hoard the blessing for himself. Abraham was blessed so that he could, in return, be a blessing. Not just to his family, not just to his friends, but to the enemies of God, he would ultimately be a blessing. And did you notice, it's very subtle, the connection between Genesis 12 and what we read about Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. It says in Genesis 1, go fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth. There's no distinction. It doesn't say fill Eden or fill Israel or fill this plot of land that is apportioned to you and your kin. Leave other plots of land to other people. Fill the earth and multiply. Abraham is called to bless all the families of the earth. All of them without distinction. And so God is picking up with that speech to Abraham. He is saying what Adam and Eve failed to do as a consequence of their sin, I am now picking up again, giving to Abraham, that he might be the founder of our faith, with the exception of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate founder. But if you've got Hebrews in your mind, then correct me later. But in a way, Abraham is a founder of the faith in that he carries those promises of God. God is providentially working out his salvation for all people. But that doesn't become clear and we're not going to believe that as Gentiles unless in the New Testament, a guy like Paul, who is a Hebrew of Hebrews, self-attested, uh, a, a Benjamite, and a man um, who had, the zeal, had more zeal for the tradition of his fathers than anyone else. That apostle Paul, who had every reason in the flesh to put confidence in, I am an Israelite, you are not. He says this in Galatians 3, 26. In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Jesus Christ took what Abraham started in granting the love of God to all people. He took that and he purchased what Abraham also failed to do. He purchased it with his blood. And he said, on the sure confidence of my precious blood, on that basis, 
all people may come to me and find reconciliation with God and community with fellow saints. Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, and we're going to kind of park ourselves in this larger verse for the, the remainder. Ephesians 2, 11, 18 brings a couple things together for us. It shows us how God has broken down the hostility between Jew and Gentile. And then it also shows us that unity doesn't stop there. Unity is not just a matter of making sure people who don't know Christ get along and know that they can come to Christ. We have a need for unity and, and a need to be reminded of the basis of our unity, even as believers. Because Satan, we should not be outwitted by his schemes. He will find ways to divide us. And knowing that Jews and Gentiles get along might not be enough for us. We might need even a firmer basis for determining that, yes, in fact, we as believers are one despite all our differences. Ephesians 2.11 says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the peak example of social reconciliation. Cut off from God to members of one body by virtue of the merits and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Social distinctions demolish. But, as I said earlier, I think that question of diversity, that aspect of diversity, is not necessarily what might be at the forefront of many of our minds, with some exceptions. Because we still have distinctions as members of the body of Christ. We might have ethnic unity in a, any given congregation or any given group of people, but other things divide us. So the best answer to the question of does Christianity crush diversity, it goes deeper than one single social issue like ethnic diversity. Diversity includes diversity of experience, in some cases diversity of opinion, and certainly diversity of personality. Human beings are tribal by nature. We divide over things big and small. We divide by ethnicity, class, culture, age, social cause, hobbies, and even by brands. And that's not just the case with the young or with just the old. At every stage of life, we encounter new temptations to divide, to exclude, or to self-select ourselves out of fellowship with others. 
Satan, if he can't get a group of teenagers to divide over a political cause, he can get them to divide according to fashion standards. And we shouldn't think that any of us in this room are above the, the baser impulses of a teenage mind. We might not divide over fashion as often or maybe not ever, but we will divide over other things that Satan is content to allow us to divide over as long as we're divided. The point is, issues as big as racism and ethnic prejudice don't have to exist in order for division to exist. Division is not a symptom of one particular social issue. Division is a symptom of a corrupt human heart. I think that gets at maybe some deep emotional concerns for us at times. Because we might think or believe because someone has, has told us or whatever, I'm equal and I'm, I'm accepted, but am I connected? I, I've been told that you are equal to me and there's no distinction between us, but am I connected to this community? Am I connected to this fellowship? What is the basis for it? Do I have to become a certain sort of person in order to be loved or appreciated or accepted? And at Banner Church, that is, that is not the case. You are, by virtue of being made in the image of God, accepted on that basis. You don't have to take on a certain brand. You don't have to take on a certain approach to socializing in order to be accepted and loved. We all have our weaknesses. We all have our, our eccentricities. But those things do not define us. We are defined by our very essence. But there's always going to be challenges, and there's always going to be a reason to overlook that or forget that and to say, okay, I'm checking out, or okay, that person should check out. I wish that person would check out, right? There's always that temptation, and the, the blood-bought preciousness of Christ's redemption sometimes isn't, isn't enough for us, but I think that we can allow ourselves some other incentives for being united, and I think it's in that final verse I read Ephesians 2.18. I want to read it again. It says, For through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul lists all three persons of the Trinity. He's grounding our access to God in the different operations or roles that the members of the Trinity live out. Christ is defined in many respects by his suffering for our sake. And so if we are to be like Christ and be in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we ought to suffer like Christ. We suffer together. Though we are diverse, we suffer as one. We bear each other's burdens. And if we don't do that, then we are not living out what Christ himself did in bearing our burdens. Secondly, we both have access in one spirit. The spirit is what gives us our gifts. Maybe it's a gift of prophecy or a gift of speaking in tongues or a gift of teaching. Or maybe it's not a spiritual gift so much as a natural gift still given to you by the spirit of God in a different way. Whatever those gifts might be, we serve diversely as one because we have one spirit. There's not many spirits. One's not better than the other. There's one Holy Spirit. And together we serve that one who apportions as he wills 
whatever gifts he decides to give to each one of us. So we suffer together as we bear each other's burdens, and we serve together in one spirit as we appreciate each other's gifts. For the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. In the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. In the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, Paul says, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be what? No division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And this last bit's key. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. What incentive do we have to be together? I think it's, it's to serve together. I think it's to validate one another. I see the gift that God has given you, and I validate that I need it. Not only do I like it or find it cool or whatever, I need it because I don't have that same gift. Or even if I have the same gift, I don't have it like you have it. I don't, may, might not have it in the measure you have it. And we all need one another's gifts. So we validate. We suffer together. We serve together. We sacrifice. We validate. And finally, what's left? We have Son, Spirit, the Father. Verse 18 of Ephesians 2 says, through, For through Christ we, have both, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One Christ, one spirit, one Father. That means we celebrate together. Because we are all a part of one household. We celebrate together and we are affectionate toward one another because we believe that our ties, our bonds, our spiritual bonds as members of Christ's body are stronger than mere blood ties. These will last to eternity. These will carry with us when we are given new bodies. My blood will be lost to the cosmos, but my spiritual bonds to other brothers and sisters in Christ, that will not be lost. And so we practice for heaven by living in unity with one another now knowing that we celebrate together we celebrate one another's wins we celebrate and worship the father together we suffer together we validate each other and we show affection to one another the band could come on up the question of diversity does christianity crush diversity for unbelievers the key is in realizing that we all share that common origin whether you know christ or not is insignificant in relation to your value you are valued and you are loved whether you are in christ or not whether you have begun a relationship with him or not god is calling God is seeking the lost, and God sent his son in order to redefine your relationship, that you might be reconciled and ultimately adopted 
into that household of God. But the image of God in all of us is not the only thing that is common to all people. The corruption of sin is common to all of us. There is the common image, but then there's the common problem of sin. Our common origin has been marred by a common corruption, but that also has a single solution, and it's the free gift of salvation in Christ. Would you stand with me? The solution for sin can't be found in racial reconciliation on its own. The solution for sin is not found in any sort of unity apart from, first and foremost, unity with Jesus through faith. Christ offers that solution for your sin in the salvation of Jesus Christ as a free gift. Whoever you are, whether Jew or Gentile, whether American or Norwegian, whoever you are, you are loved in spite of your sin. And because you are loved, God sent a savior from your sin. And if you would only believe in him and place your trust in him and persevere into the end, you would enjoy the company of Father, Son, Spirit, and the entire body of Christ for eternity eternal life, eternal joy, the satisfaction of your deepest longings, acceptance at the deepest level. And if you're a believer, you have perhaps a different challenge, certainly a different challenge. You are forgiven, you are cleansed, you have been given the Spirit, and yet there are still divisions in your life, whether externally between you and others, or internally in yourself, this sense that there is not unity in your life. Perhaps relationships are broken, or you fear that diversity is too tricky a subject or too tricky a thing to accomplish in a world where differences are derided and finding the right, the right fit in some singular way is what's imposed upon us by culture. But we've learned from scripture that in Christ, we are bound not by those superficial things, but we are bound by the very identity of God, by Father, Son, and Spirit. So I wanna to talk to, to both of those and offer an opportunity to, to both of those audiences today. Eyes closed, heads bowed. If you're an unbeliever, you don't know Christ. You want the solution to your sin. You are aware that the image of God on you, which is precious and sacred, has been marred by sin. And what God granted you as a gift in bearing his sign and seal, in bearing and reflecting his, his character, you are aware that that's been damaged. By sin and now God is offering you cleansing and repair and forgiveness and freedom and hope and a new start as a free gift if that's you I encourage you just on the count of three to to raise your hand it's gonna be a moment of 
confession, but also a moment of hope. If that's you, just raise your hand. One, two, three. I'll pray for you. God, I pray that those who are in need of Christ Jesus, those who have never known God, or perhaps have known Him, but maybe are in a season of walking away, God, I pray that you'd speak to them through the Word. I pray that your spirit would just encourage them that tomorrow is a a new day and that today is still here and there's still opportunity to hear from God and to know and, and, and know that with confidence that God loves them, that God values them, that God does not distinguish between persons, but that everybody is welcome to come to the wedding feast that is the kingdom of God. Invitations have been sent out. Those who don't make it, don't make it only because they don't desire it. God is not holding back. He is flinging the doors wide open. God, I pray that your spirit would speak to their consciences, speak to their hearts, and encourage them that there is freedom and power with a new life in Jesus Christ. Now I want to encourage believers, and the prayer team is going to be available for prayer on the the sides of the auditorium. This is a moment for you, if you know Christ, and there are divisions, internally or externally, where you sense that you're not living out the unity that you believe that God is calling you to. Perhaps you have a gift that you're not contributing or don't feel the confidence to contribute and you know you have it you know God has sparked a flame in your heart and that you've been hiding it or you've been keeping it to yourself you've been withholding it for lack of a confidence that your voice is needed but the truth is that God has told us that we need each other we need what you have to offer authentically and if you are not grounded in the confidence that God has given it to you to share then you won't share But the purpose of this message for someone like you is to encourage you, please share that with us. Serve together with us. We'll suffer with you, we'll serve with you, and we'll celebrate wins together as we allow the Spirit of God, the Son of God, and the Father to be the basis of our unity. Nothing superficial, not because we share the same interests or hobbies, but because we are all together sharing a common purpose to glorify God through our gifts. And so now is the time to come down. Right now, if you want prayer for just power in serving, power in ministry, power in mission, now is the time to seek prayer and to come on down and to ask one of these, these prayers to, to grant you with their help just confidence and zeal to live out your spiritual gifts. Let's worship together as we do that, as we're praying. Let's worship and just think about the names of God that define our God for us. Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, that that might be the basis of our identity, what He says about us and nothing more. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.